0: Now, we're a couple months away yet, but I begin my portion of our annual business meeting, which we'll have at some point in December uh, this year. Every year, I begin my portion of that time by thanking our body, by thanking you all. And I do that because on behalf of my family and on behalf of the staff, we are overwhelmingly grateful for the generosity of this body which enables us to dedicate our entire lives to the proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a privilege that is beyond words. And so for that, we thank you. Now this past week, the preaching team and I had the opportunity to go to a preaching conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And as the, the various teachers were talking about uh, the, the incredible mandate to preach the word, I again just felt overwhelmed with thankfulness for the privilege that I have to be able to address you week after week. Near the end of his life, the man who is at the the center of today's passage wrote these arresting words to a young man named Timothy. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. It's an amazing thing to consider that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save sinners. In fact, the Lord once declared to the prophet Jeremiah, if you utter worthy, not worthless words, You will be my spokesman. Jeremiah 15, 19. So, our commitment to you as elders and as a preaching team is not so much that we'll be able to tell good stories. It's not so much that we'll have great illustrations or that we'll be funny. Not even that we'll be eloquent or that we'll even... Preach a good sermon, whatever that really means. We can't promise any of those things. But I can promise you that with all of our might, as we depend upon the Holy Spirit, I promise we will do our best to utter worthy and not worthless words as we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified to you. In today's passage, Paul, Paul offers a defense, really, explaining why he has dedicated his very own life to preaching the gospel to anyone who will listen. Our passage is Acts 21, 37, and it goes through 22 and verse 21. Hear then, brothers and sisters, the word of Almighty God. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew. From Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by. And approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so, Lord God Almighty, our Father in heaven, would you now bless the reading of your word through the power of your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Our main point I want to offer to you is as simply as I can state it. Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. I want you to hold that simple reality in your mind for a moment that Christ alone is sufficient. For salvation. I want you to hold that thought in your mind as we progress through our passage, because I think to understand the passage correctly, we really need to understand what Paul is in fact defending. So the sequence of Paul's defense unfolds like this at the end of 21, he requests to speak. That is to address the very people that were just beating him to death before he was rescued by the soldiers. Uh, and then at the beginning of 22, we'll see that Paul is expressing his zeal for Judaism because he wants his brothers and sisters to know that he loves Israel. Uh, and then we'll see that Jesus con- himself confronts Paul on the road to Damascus in 6-11. through 11. Then Ananias, in a sense, commissions Paul to his work in 12-16, through 16, and then we see that Jesus commands Paul uh, in our final verses. So let's just begin with Paul's request to speak. This situation is intense. Paul has been falsely accused by some Jews who came from Asia, and they falsely accused Paul of a number of things. One, of speaking against the Jewish people, Two, of speaking against the law of Moses. Three, of speaking against the temple. And they also falsely accused Paul of bringing in his Gentile friend, that is his brother in Christ, Trophimus. They accused him of bringing him into the temple, that is into the Jewish area of the temple. As a result of these false accusations, the people were absolutely enraged. And they began beating Paul to death. The only reason that he survived was because the chaos, when the chaos erupted, an official, a tribune, and centurions and soldiers all came running to find out what was happening. And they rescued Paul out of that, put him under arrest, and bound him. So they're walking up the steps to take him into the back area, into the Roman barracks where the soldiers lived. As they do, we find out there's another false assumption about Paul. The Roman leaders actually thought he was a rebel leader, an Egyptian who about three years prior to this had led a revolt against Rome, a small group but of 400 assassins. So the tribune probably thought, man, this is a big time arrest. I got this guy. And then he finds out after talking with Paul that, in fact, it's not true. Something about the Apostle Paul, or just the work of the Holy Spirit, gave him favor in this man's eyes, and he actually gave Paul permission to speak to the very people who were just beating him to death. And it's at this point that this scene gets extremely interesting. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Maybe it was a smaller thing, or maybe it was a really big deal. Or have you ever discovered that maybe somebody in your family, or somebody from work, or somebody from your school, or one of your friends, who's known you for a while, was actually Operating under a false assumption about you? How did you feel when that came to light? What was your natural instinct when you became aware of the accusations against you or the false narrative that had been described? For most of us, the need to defend ourselves or a sense of needing to, to set the record straight or to vindicate ourselves becomes paramount when something like that happens. But what's fascinating about this particular situation is that Paul asks to make a defense before the people because there have been multiple accusations levied against him but he doesn't actually deal directly with any of the accusations that have been made against him. The question is, why? What's Paul thinking about? What's going on here? Multiple accusations against Paul. He gets permission to address the people. And then what? I think the answer is that Paul, Paul is driven by an intense desire to, to persuade his fellow Jews that Jesus is, in fact, <clears throat> the Messiah. Paul knows that ultimately, he is not the one on trial. Jesus is. Think about how many times throughout the book of Acts... Every single time, whether it's his first missionary journey or his second missionary journey or his third missionary journey, think about what Paul would do every time he got to a new region. He would go first to the synagogue so that he might try to persuade his fellow countrymen that Jesus was, in fact, God's long-awaited Messiah. Paul had expressed a deep longing for the Jewish people to come to know the Lord, To persuade them that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. Now, I think the way Paul approaches this is really instructive for us. My hope and my prayer is that we too would have eyes, when we're accused, to perhaps see something bigger that may be going on. To see that as an opportunity that lies Before us, something more important than than merely defending the honor of our name, but the opportunity to witness about Jesus, perhaps even at the risk of being dishonored ourselves. Paul was less concerned about vindicating himself and much more concerned with seizing the opportunity to point people to Jesus. Paul had come to a place where proclaiming the greatness of the glory of Jesus was more important to him than life itself. The words of John the Baptist had come to pass in Paul's life. Jesus must increase. Paul himself had decreased. In Acts 20, 24, Paul said it this way, I I do not account my life as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. This conviction is being lived out in real time as Paul turns on the top steps to face this bloodthirsty crowd. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So Paul opens up very, very respectfully. He's speaking as a man who is within the family. He's a Hebrew. And he's speaking to them in either Hebrew or or Aramaic. And he says, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as you all are this day. Evidenced by the fact that you were just beating me to death moments ago. There's a sense in which Paul is arguing, look, I'm the most prototypical Jew (laughs) that you could imagine. It reminds us of the way he argues in Philippians 3. If anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless. Now, I don't. I don't care if Paul is just talking about his external adherence to the law. That anyone could say with conviction of heart, as it relates to God's law, I was blameless. Uh, That's just jaw dropping. But Paul was not only blameless as it relates to righteousness, he was ruthless as it relates to persecution. He basically says, look, you think you zealously hate the way because you were beating me to death? I hated the followers of Jesus much, much more zealously than you. This wasn't a game. Think about it with me. Some of you ladies are in the Mama Bear apologetics class, and based on these verses, if you were gathering together, Paul would have had no problem walking into that class, ripping your sleeping babies out of your arms, chaining you with soldiers And walking you to your execution. And he would have thought he was pleasing and honoring God the whole time. Paul says, look, if you don't believe me, ask the high priest and the council. They're the ones that gave me the letters. Presumably some of them were probably there. So Paul appeals to them as witnesses in his defense. Paul's argument is essentially this. My Jewish brothers and sisters, I was you, only more so. But as Paul was heading to Damascus with council letters in hand to capture more Christians, something happened. Paul was confronted on the road to Damascus by the man who in fact leads the way that he was so vehemently opposing. A man executed on a Roman cross several decades before and he is now speaking directly to Paul. One moment Paul is traveling at noon during during the brightest part of the day, thinking he is seeing God's will with perfect clarity, so he is zealous to follow it. And the next moment, the very next moment, he he is just blasted with a radiance of glory whose blazing brightness is so intense it surpasses the sun. Paul is confronted with a holy presence that is so fearsome and so powerful. He is instantly and he is effortlessly just driven to the ground for the first time paul realizes he is utterly blind both physically and spiritually when this being speaks to him paul has only two questions who are you and what do you want me to do Paul doesn't know who this is, but he, but, he, but he knows enough to address him as Lord. So Paul is blinded, he's humbled, so much so that he's being led by the hand, by those who are with him into Damascus, and his mission is changed in an instant. Because Paul now has come under a new authority, and this new authority has commanded him to warn others about the wrath to come and to proclaim the good news of Jesus to them. I was talking earlier about feeling overwhelmed when we went to this preaching conference about the, the responsibility and the joy and the privilege and the honor that it is to herald the good news of Jesus Christ perhaps the most sobering responsibility for those of us who are charged with proclaiming the gospel is that we are to warn others of their spiritual peril apart from Christ so I feel compelled to do that now so if you're not not a believer in Jesus or Maybe you're a skeptic of Christianity or you heard a little bit about Jesus, but just kind of minimize him. If you're a person who has smugly dismissed the claims of Christianity because you're so so confident, you're so confident in the way that you view the world. Let me simply ask you to consider this experience of the Apostle Paul. Paul is, in fact, one of the most famous men who has ever lived. He is considered the church's most brilliant theologian. He had a titanic intellect. He had at least two PhDs, probably by the time he was 21, studying under Gamaliel. Even today, He's considered a first-rate philosopher. Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of books have been written about his theology. So, if you feel comfortable dismissing the claims of Christianity because you're confident in your view of the world, I simply want to make the point that I can pretty much guarantee that Paul is a lot smarter than you are. Paul said about the law of God that as it relates to it, he was, he was blameless as it related to righteousness. So I can pretty much guarantee that, that Paul lived his life with more intentional righteousness than you do. And Paul's zeal for the truth is legendary, if not incomparable, in the history of mankind. He pursued the truth. And he too was comfortable with how he had sized up Jesus and dismissed him. Yet, when confronted with the reality of who Jesus actually is, Paul was brought to the end. He was brought to the end of his foolish speculations in an instant. So, I am, out of love, if if this describes you in any way, I am warning you. For the sake of your soul, in light of eternity, I'm warning you, do not easily brush Jesus off or just kind of attempt to place him neatly in a box, safely stored away in some small back compartment of your mind. Rather, consider who it is that you are rejecting. If you're a young person, uh, maybe you're being secretive about your sin, or maybe you're reveling in your sin, thinking it's, it's really not that big of a deal. Even though you know, even though your conscience bears witness to you that what you're doing is not right. If that's you, do not I implore you, I'm begging you do not push away the prompting of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come indeed he is here and his job is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment so that necessarily also includes you. So If you're flirting with some kind of sexual sin because some just idiot influencer on Instagram who has zero authority in your life and zero authority in the world, someone who who doesn't know you, doesn't care about you, and doesn't love you, has made some kind of perversion seem fun or natural or right, let me warn you, let me warn you that you are playing with a fire that is so hot it will burn into eternity. So if you're flirting with or even indulging in sin, consider the greatness of the might of the one that you are offending. And turn, turn, flee from your sin and turn from your wicked ways. If you are a Christian who's just been trifling with God, just, just playing games with your obedience to him. If you just kind of float along through the day spiritually without any real spiritual wrought conviction or resolve to follow Jesus in faith and every day just, just seems like the last one. Maybe, maybe tomorrow will be better. Maybe tomorrow I'll make God more of a priority in my family's life or, or even in my own life. I could do that later today. Well, no, I'll just do it tomorrow. Actually, i got a busy week. I'll, I'll get to it next week. If any of these things describe you, I, I need to warn you. I need to warn you that you are walking on the edge of an icy cliff in a driving storm. And I need to warn you that in Deuteronomy 32, 35, addressing the sinner, the Lord says, in due time, your foot will slide. And in the same verse, he says, Vengeance and payback are mine. So if anyone is walking in unrepentance, take heed lest you fall. Repent. Repent of your sin. Flee from your sin and turn to God. Do so before it's too late. Consider the one who confronted a completely unsuspecting Paul and he effortlessly brought this man to his knees. Perhaps the proudest Pharisee that ever lived, convinced in his own mind that what he was doing was right. He was brought to the end of himself in a moment. Friends, Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven, he's Lord of earth, and he's Lord of hell. And we need to remember the reality of who he is. So if you need a, if you need a place to turn for hope, read on with me into this next section in verses 12 through 16. Paul points out that the man who helped him, he he was thought of well by all of the Jews. And he was a devout man according to the law. Because again, what Paul is doing is saying, I was a zealous Jew. I I was zealous for the law. And Ananias is a well-known, well-liked Jew who lived according to the law. So what happened was not me rebelling against Israel. What happened was something that God did to me. Paul wants them to know there isn't a hint of animosity toward the Jewish people or to the law of Moses, either in him or in Ananias. So if you're looking for hope, you can find it in the words given to the man that once described himself. As the worst sinner on earth. Verse verse 14. And he said. The God of our fathers. Appointed you to know his will. To see the righteous one. The God of our fathers. That is the one true and living God. Appointed you Paul. To know his will. That is to receive mercy. Through his son Jesus. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, revealed himself to Paul in his great mercy and grace. And he too has revealed himself, that is Jesus Christ, he has revealed himself to us through his word. Jesus Christ is both the judge of the living and the dead. He is the son of God who has come in peace to bring the joy of salvation to any and to all who will receive him in faith. And we know this because God's word says that it is true. Jesus suffered on the cross so that you might be delivered from your sin and so that you might know the love of God, the peace of God, the love of God. The friendship of God, the beauty and majesty of God, so that you might know God, and more importantly, be known by God forever. This is how Isaiah fifty three eleven puts it. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The good news of the gospel is that God offers the righteousness of Jesus to you in exchange for your sin. Jesus took your sin upon himself on the cross of Calvary, and he offers his righteousness to you. If you're thinking, did I hear that right? That couldn't possibly be true. Yes, in fact, you heard that right. And in fact, it is true. The son of God, the righteous one, offers his very own personal righteousness to you in exchange for your very own personal sin against God, that's why Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. So the question is, if you're walking in unrepentance as it relates to sin, or if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, will you repent of your sin and receive the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? What's holding you back? I I say the same thing that Ananias said to Paul here. And now, why do you wait? (laughs) What are you waiting for? Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. He alone is the way to the Father, He alone is the way and the truth. And the life. My exhortation is to you to put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. No matter what age you are, now, if you have not done that. Look, and if you want to be baptized, just let us know. We'll do it. It's going to take a couple minutes to fill up the baptismal, but we'll do it. We'll wait around and we will do it. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ today and you want to be baptized today, we'll do it. Just let me know. Finally, Paul says that Jesus spoke to him in, in the temple. One of the reasons that Paul includes that is because he wants the Jews to know look, I'm not against the temple, I'm here praying. But Jesus himself told this man that his testimony would not be received by the Jews. Jesus told this Jew-loving Jew that the Jews would not receive his testimony about Jesus. Therefore, he sends him away to the Gentiles. Let's pull, let's pull, let's pull Paul's argumentation, his, his defense together now. The reason the Jews were angry is not because Gentiles were coming to God. The reason they were angry is because Gentiles were becoming Christians without first becoming Jews. That's why they were upset. They thought that was offensive to God. So the question becomes in the end, what is Paul defending? There are accusations against him personally. What is he defending? For that matter, just think through what this might look like in our own lives. If you are confronted by someone in your family or at work or in your neighborhood, whatever the context is, actually these days, rather than a false accusation, the most likely thing that could happen to you is you may be confronted with actual truth claims of Christianity, and people will say something to you like, you don't believe this, do you? How are you going to respond? Are you going to try to minimize the situation? Are you going to try to soften the truth? Are you going to be more concerned about defending your glory and honor or the preservation of your life? My encouragement to you is to seize the opportunity to point people to Jesus Christ. So what is Paul defending? Paul understood that though he was the specific target of the animosity, what was really on trial was Christianity. Same thing for us. People may come at you vehemently opposed to you, furious with you, but ultimately it's not about you. It's about what Jesus says is true. Paul was hoping that through his simple testimony, his fellow Jews would somehow see that everything that happened to him was not driven by him. Rather, everything that happened to Paul occurred through the sovereign will and command of Yahweh, that is, the Holy One of Israel. In other words, Paul's saying, Look, you're upset with me. I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew of Jews. I love the law. I love Moses. I love the people of Israel. Your God, our God, is the one who spoke to me. He's the one who gave me this command. But what was really on trial was not Paul, but the gospel message itself. What was really on trial was the reality, the reality that Jesus can justify a sinner apart from works of the law, because he's fulfilled it himself. What was really on trial was the reality that the command of God to Israel to serve as a light to the nations either will happen or it won't, and Israel wasn't fulfilling the command. They didn't even receive the Messiah that God had sent. What was really on trial, therefore, was the glory and honor of God through his plan to be both just and justifier of the ungodly. What was really on trial was the fact that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. As it relates to salvation, brothers and sisters, all we have is Christ. All we have is Jesus. All we have is the sufficiency of his blood on our behalf to wash away our sins and to make us whole. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is more than enough. To him be glory and honor and praise and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we we are stunned by how good the good news actually is and how strong the opposition to your loving, gracious, merciful will actually is. Lord, I pray that you would use us in whatever way that you choose. Use Use our ransomed lives in any way that you choose, we want to glorify you. We want to proclaim a faithful testimony about you and not be concerned about defending the honor of our names. Rather, Lord, fill us with your spirit and send us out. Give us boldness and confidence in your spirit that we might tell others the simple truths about Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use those testimonies, those witnesses to bring many many sons to glory. Do that work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.